If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of March 26, 2023. The podcast that put handrails on the stairway to heaven. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's provincialize the news of the bogus. We'll start off with an update to a previous story. We covered the controversy surrounding the 2022 Arizona gubernatorial election, in particular voting irregularities in Maricopa County. Although Katie Hobbs has been declared the winner, challenger Carrie Lake has been contesting the votes in court. She made a number of different claims about malfunctioning equipment, voters being discouraged, problems with chain of custody, a conflict of interest since Hobbs's office was in charge of the election, and, most notably, failing the signature checks so badly they validated signatures that weren't even in the ballpark. The lower court struck down everything on the basis that they didn't intend for their misconduct to affect the election, which was never a requirement of the law, and the Court of Appeals upheld it. Now, the Arizona Supreme Court has ruled that the Court of Appeals aptly resolved the issues and that Lake didn't have enough grounds to warrant relief, with one exception, the signatures. The courts had denied her request for relief on the basis of the signature matching due to the doctrine of latches, which basically says you waited too long to file the complaint because equitable relief is now either impossible or too disruptive. In other words, latches has nothing to do with the facts or arguments based on the law. Quote, Issue number six asks, Did the panel err in dismissing the signature verification claim on latches, mischaracterizing Lake's claim as a challenge to existing signature verification policies, when Lake in fact alleged that Maricopa failed to follow these policies during the 2022 general election? Contrary to the ruling of the trial court, In the Court of Appeals' opinion, this signature verification challenge is to the application of the policies, not to the policies themselves. Therefore, it was erroneous to dismiss this claim under the doctrine of latches because Lake could not have brought this challenge before the election. Latches, like standing, is one of those things that's been a tool for abuse for a long time. For example, in 2004, Libertarian presidential candidate Michael Badnarik and Green Party candidate David Cobb sued for inclusion into the debates and were denied their case based on standing since the debate commission hadn't yet officially excluded them. As soon as they did, they sued again and this time were denied based on latches because they'd waited too long because the debates were coming up so soon there was no way to accommodate them. I tell you, forget the Bible. Catch-22 was a book of prophecy. So Lake was put in the same situation. There would have been no way to contest the signature matching before the election since the abuse hadn't happened yet. But if she waits until after the election, just cry latches because it will be so disruptive not to have Hobbs as governor anymore. So they sent it back down to the trial court to reconsider it, quote, For reasons other than latches, or whether petitioner can prove her claim is alleged, and established that votes were affected in sufficient numbers to alter the outcome of the election based on a competent mathematical basis to conclude that the outcome would plausibly have been different. 
So although it was the only count that was allowed, it's arguably the most important one, the one people were making the biggest deal of after the election, and the one most likely to make the difference. Of course, to hear the news media tell it, Lake lost all over the place and the left was gloating all over social media. This is another example of why you just can't trust them to tell you the whole story. Also, you might want to be skeptical of any claims of their big defenders of democracy. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. Of course, one of the things they were saying about these election claims was that they were a conspiracy theory, but then they've been saying that about practically everything. In proper skeptic parlance, a conspiracy theory is not simply an idea that there was a conspiracy, and a lot of these don't even involve conspiracies, but rather an appeal to a conspiracy as an excuse for not having evidence. The earth is flat, and I'd have all sorts of evidence for it if only the global scientific cabal led by NASA hadn't covered it all up. That is a conspiracy theory. But more and more, conspiracy theory itself has been used as an excuse to dismiss a contrary position without having to go through all the bother of doing an actual debunking. And this is where Reason.com's Jesse Walker comes in, talking about how these kooky theories often aren't so kooky. He starts off using Princess Diana as an example. The claim is that the conspiracy theorists, disbelieving the official story of a car accident, believed that she was assassinated and that she was still alive, which is completely contradictory. But there are a few problems with this. Conspiracy theorists aren't one big homogenous blob. Some of them claim she was assassinated, while others claim she's still alive. But it also ignores the fact that people don't necessarily believe a conclusion 100%. They rank various options as more or less likely. So they might favor, say, the theory she was assassinated over the theory that she's still alive, but rank both of them above the official story. The fallacy, expressed in a 2012 paper published in Social Psychological and Personality Science, also said on a different issue, quote, Believing that Osama bin Laden is still alive is apparently no obstacle to believing that he has been dead for years. And this view has dominated the pop science pseudo-skeptics for a long time. It gives them a nice feeling of superiority to think that they're so much smarter than these dumb conspiracy theorists. 
Ironically, that's also how conspiracy theorists feel regarding believers of the official story. In fact, rather than showing any sort of insanity or inanity behind the conspiracy theorists, it just shows a statistical paradox. When you aggregate statistics and forget that you're dealing with a bunch of individual cases that may not correlate with each other overall. That's the point of a new paper published in Psychological Science. People who endorse one conspiracy theory are less likely to believe a contradictory theory, not more. And even in cases that appeared to be exceptions, they apparently weren't all that contradictory. Someone could believe that it was a failed assassination attempt on Princess Diana. Or Big Pharma could be covering up a cure for cancer and obstructing research because they're hiding a cure for one type of cancer while obstructing research on another. Another example is a study on COVID conspiracy theories, which was run in the early, confused days of the pandemic. People were considering all sorts of possibilities, and the study had been set up in a way that people couldn't go back and change their answers when asked a new question. Of course, there are cases where you should reject conspiracy theories on their face, such as earlier when I mentioned they're an excuse for not having evidence. Another, as we covered in the past, is that it's next to impossible to maintain a conspiracy of just a few dozen people, let alone a conspiracy that would have to involve the complicity of thousands of people worldwide. Or just by having them be ridiculously powerful, such as having the ability to stop the publication of an idea in every single peer-reviewed journal in the world, of which there are tens of thousands publishing millions of articles every year. But more and more, it seems to be an excuse to denigrate people who disagree, such as associating conspiracy theories with the conservative right, or saying the conspiracy theorists are on the extremes, far left and far right, not like the very sensible people in the center. But none of those appear to be the case. Conspiracy thinking just appears to be something some people do on occasion. It's not associated with one political faction or another, although understandably it is often more prevalent in those who are opposed to the current regime in whatever society they live. The real problem, it seems, comes from the people who consider a particular conspiracy theory to be a threat. For example... 5G conspiracy theories range from it being a deliberate weapon to merely being a health hazard. The industry found that focusing on their more paranoid opponents was more effective in undermining all of them. And the even bigger threat was from those wanting to curtail free speech as a result. Aside from the eventuality of one of these alternative theories actually being true, muting conspiracy thinking might make people more susceptible to actual conspiracies. And, of course, it would allow those with power and influence to make their own conspiracy theories with little fear of debunking, like with the satanic panic. And then they could just declare the people with facts and evidence that went against them as conspiracy theorists. All of this is why it's important to keep conspiracy theory to its original meaning in rationalist parlance and to be automatically skeptical of anyone throwing the phrase around where it just doesn't apply. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? 
A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. As we so often say, we don't like doing cops behaving badly stories unless there's some new kind of twist with it. And boy, is this one twisty. This goes beyond shot the family chihuahua because they thought it was a rabid Bengal tiger kind of story. And it goes beyond merely arresting people for filming them. In fact, I don't know of any story comparable to this one. In August of last year, police raided the Ohio home of Joseph Foreman, a rapper who operates under the moniker Afro Man. They claimed to have been searching for drugs, as well as evidence of trafficking and kidnapping, ultimately finding no evidence, and couldn't even seem to say why they would think he committed those crimes, unless they took seriously his 2001 hit single, Because I Got High. He even got back all the money they'd seized, some $5,000 all total, except for $400 which mysteriously went missing. As Foreman described it, quote, They come up here with AR-15s, traumatize my kids, destroyed my property, kick in my door, rip up and destroy my camera system. He wasn't home at the time, but his wife was, and she made sure to capture as much of the raid as possible on video, assisted by Foreman's security cameras. Foreman retaliated against the bogus raid by releasing music videos using the footage his wife and security cams recorded, including songs titled Lemon Pound Cake, a parody of Under the Boardwalk, and based on one of the items found in the raid, to which at least one officer helped himself, Why You Disconnecting My Video Camera, showing them doing exactly that and giving details of the raid, and Will You Help Me Repair My Door. In the latter song, one of the lyrics is, Will you pay me for doing me wrong? Well, they decided justice went the other way around and sued Foreman. Foreman said that the videos were a way to process and express his feelings and was shocked when the videos went viral. The lawsuit from these easily triggered Marys was probably a bigger shock. Adams County Sheriff Kimmy Rogers even whined about the toll it was taking on the officers. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo. They're each demanding at least $25,000 in five separate counts because Foreman didn't get permission to use their likenesses. Quote, Personas of the plaintiffs were not used by defendants in connection with any news, public affairs, sports broadcast, or political campaign, and their unauthorized use of plaintiffs' personas for commercial purposes was not justified or excused. Unbelievable. One of the examples they said would offend any reasonable person is footage of one of the officers, an obviously obese Sean Cooley, asking for a piece of the aforementioned lemon pound cake during the raid. 
What, these babies can't even take one ten-thousandth of the ridicule, loss of reputation, embarrassment, and emotional distress as they dish out on their victims on a regular basis? We'll see what happens, but I for one can't imagine he made me feel bad by showing the horrible things I did to him as being a winning legal strategy. All they're doing is showing that none of them are fit to be cops. But, of course, the raid itself had already done that. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to monumentalize this week's Biggest Bogani Emitter. And as near as I can figure, the SEC must be making an early run for Idiot of the Year. According to a Twitter thread from Brian Armstrong, co-founder and CEO of Coinbase, the company just received a Wells notice indicating future enforcement action against the crypto exchange. Quote, Two years ago, the SEC reviewed our business in detail and approved Coinbase to go public. Coinbase runs a rigorous asset review process and has rejected more than 90% of assets that have applied to be listed on the platform. We are proud to stand up for our customers and the industry in these moments. Going forward, the legal process will provide an open and public forum before an unbiased body where we will be able to make clear for all to see that the SEC simply has not been fair, reasonable, or even demonstrated a seriousness of purpose when it comes to its engagement on digital assets. He linked to the company's blog, which said, quote, Today's Wells notice does not provide a lot of information for us to respond to. The SEC staff told us they have identified potential violations of securities law, but little more. We asked the SEC specifically to identify which assets on our platforms they believe may be securities, and they declined to do so. Today's Wells Notice also comes after Coinbase provided multiple proposals to the SEC about registration over the course of months, all of which the SEC ultimately refused to respond to. He went on to point out that this is yet another example of what the SEC has done to Library and Ripple, which is regulation by enforcement. And contrary to public statements the SEC has made about crypto companies, quote, The SEC will not let crypto companies come in and register. We tried. And even worse, quote, The SEC asked us to provide our views on what a registration path for Coinbase would look like, because there is no existing way for a crypto exchange to register. We met with the SEC more than 30 times over nine months, but we were doing all of the talking. In December 2022, we asked the SEC again for some feedback on our proposals. 
The SEC staff agreed to provide feedback in January 2023. In January, the day before our scheduled meeting, the SEC canceled on us and told us they would be shifting back to an enforcement investigation. We now understand that there is disagreement within the commission itself on how to proceed with the registration path. This was just two months ago. At no point in this investigation has the SEC told us a single specific concern about a single asset on our platform. To move to a Wells notice now is unusual to say the least. Library tweeted in response, We stand with Coinbase 100%. What the SEC is doing to them isn't just misinformed. They're intentionally evil people. But unfortunately, if the standards of the SEC versus Library case hold, Coinbase was almost certainly breaking the law. We don't want this to be true, but it is. Meanwhile, the SEC issued an official investor alert warning investors about crypto where they whined about not having enough protection. Hey, authoritarian sociopaths, we don't need your protection. Crypto is protected with math. We can decide how much of a risk we want to take with exchanges, and if we decide not to, we can just move it into a wallet that we control 100%. What other investment item gives you that ability? Meanwhile, the various federal agencies can't make up their minds as to whether cryptocurrencies are commodities, securities, currency, or none of these. And with cryptocurrency being in existence for 14 years, that's inexcusable. Coinbase said, quote, The bottom line remains, Coinbase does not list securities or offer products to our customers that are securities. Coinbase has a rigorous process to analyze and review each digital asset before making it available on our exchange, a process that we shared in detail with the SEC as part of our public listing. This process includes an analysis of whether the asset could be considered to be a security. Over the last nine months, they met with the SEC over 30 times and got precisely zero feedback on what they need to change. Everything in their behavior says they're acting in good faith, just like Library and Ripple. Any legal system that doesn't make it clear ahead of time what behavior is legal and what is illegal is unjust and doesn't deserve to exist. Or, as Coinbase said so simply, quote, Tell us the rules and we will follow them. And it's their failure to do that basic task that makes the SEC this week's biggest bogan emitter. want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV, anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV.
And now let's boulderize this week's Idiot And few of you could have missed the histrionics the U.S. government has been making recently about TikTok. Basically, Congress and the White House has become unhinged over the idea of the Chinese government doing to Americans exactly what the NSA has been doing to us at least since the Bush years that they either ignored or were directly complicit in. The difference is, I can choose not to install TikTok. I don't get that option with the NSA. At issue is TikTok's owners, the Chinese company ByteDance, which they say is in cahoots with the Chinese government. While it's true the app is basically a big engine for spying on its users, it's also true that the app doesn't give them anything they couldn't just buy on the net anyway. But it turns out they're going even further than Donald Trump, who was called a racist because he saw China merely as an economic opponent. The current regime sees it as a threat, and they're trying to enlist the help of the UK and other allies in what seems to be building up to military opposition, shoring up forces in the Pacific to counter the threat. As diplomat Craig Murray points out, I cannot readily think of any example in history of a state which achieved the level of economic dominance China has now achieved that did not seek to use its economic muscle to finance military acquisition of territory to increase its economic resources. In that respect, China is vastly more Pacific than the United States, United Kingdom, France, Spain, or any other formerly prominent power. He makes one simple comparison— the number of military bases the USA has in foreign countries as opposed to China, which, depending on whose figures you use, is anywhere from 750 to 1100 for the US, whereas China has less than 10. Quote, The last military aggression by China was its takeover of Tibet in 1951 and 1959. Since that date, we've seen the United States invade with massive destruction Vietnam, Cambodia, Korea, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya. He forgot Lebanon, the Bay of Pigs, the Dominican Republic, Grenada, Panama, Somalia, Bosnia, Yemen. But in fairness, I'm probably forgetting a lot more, too. To those of you who are screeching at your computer speakers, what about Taiwan? We'll get to that in a bit. Quote, China has constructed some military bases by artificially extending small islands. That is perfectly legal behavior. The territory is Chinese. As the United States has numerous bases in the region on other people's territory, I truly struggle to see where the objection lies to Chinese bases on Chinese territory. File these under questions no U.S. official will answer. China has also made claims about maritime jurisdiction, which, as Murray points out, is a violation of the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea, but no worse than, and not even as bad as, military activities by the U.S., who enforces a 200-mile exclusion zone around its islands to China's 12. As for Taiwan, Murray makes the big point everyone should remember about that conflict, quote, Taiwan is a part of China which separated off under the nationalist government after the Civil War. Taiwan does not claim not to be Chinese territory. In fact, and this is far too little understood in the West because our media does not tell you, the government of Taiwan still claims to be the legitimate government of all of China. The government of Taiwan supports reunification just as much as the government of China, the only difference being who would be in charge. The dispute with Taiwan is therefore an unresolved Chinese civil war, not an independent state menaced by China. 
And if you doubt that, just look at their official name. They don't call themselves Taiwan. They call themselves the Republic of China. And as Murray points out, it's just not our fight. Not that that's ever stopped the U.S. in the past. Quote, There is no evidence whatsoever that China has any intention of invading anywhere else in the China Seas or the Pacific. Not Singapore, not Japan, and least of all Australia. That is almost as fantastic as the ludicrous idea that the UK must be defended from Russian invasion. If China wanted, it could simply buy 100% of every public-listed company in Australia without even noticing a dent in China's dollar reserves. Which is what this is really about. China's economic dominance. No different from what Trump was complaining about. But at least Trump wasn't spoiling for military action against them. Really, China just seems to be smarter than the U.S. If you're wondering how a totalitarian socialist government like the CCP keeps making economic advances while the much more free United States keeps slipping, just look at this very difference. Focusing on economic trade rather than military dominance is exactly how the U.S. became a superpower. It's exactly how China is advancing, and it's exactly what the U.S. has forgotten. Murray says, quote, Growing Chinese economic dominance does not appear to me a reversible process in the coming century. But that's where I think he's wrong. We could turn this about any time we wanted, just by agreeing to share the world rather than dominate it, agreeing to trade with other countries rather than bully them, and undoing the hideous regulatory state that's putting a stranglehold on businesses and sending them to other countries where they can operate a little more freely. And when they go to a communist country to do that, you're doing something wrong. So all of that makes the U.S. government this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this. This is a catastrophe. A disaster certain to offend peoples of all races, creeds, and religions. Edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Roger Veer. I think most politicians have almost no understanding of economics. Otherwise, they wouldn't have become politicians. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. <laughs>